Bibles, you can grab them and go to Acts 8. Acts 8 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you, and hopefully there's a bookmark in there. You should be able to open up to that bookmark uh, and be right in Acts somewhere near the beginning or even at Acts 8. Um, so we've been through this book of the Bible uh, over and over again, seeing how God is moving, seeing how God is showing up, how the church has begun, and how the, the boldness and faithfulness of God's people has continued to spread um, amongst Jerusalem, and now starting to creep out past beyond Jerusalem. So, uh, as I said, we're going to be in Acts 8 this morning. So, I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump in and get to work. So, please, bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather, to study your word, to hear from you, to uh, enjoy your presence. God, we ask that you would help us to slow down this morning, help us to pay attention. There's a reason you got us up this morning. There's a reason you got us here today. There's a reason you got us in Acts 8 today. There's something you have for us. There's a word. There is an encouragement. There is a rebuke. There is a challenge. There is something for us today, for each one of us, regardless of how our week went, regardless of how our morning went. This is an opportunity where we get to stop and slow down and hear from you and be with you. So God, whatever it is that you have for each of us here this morning, I pray that we would have hearts soft enough to respond, to hear it and respond, to not just be leaders and hearers of the word, but doers, to be the people who live in light of the gospel, that live in light of what you have called us to, and live to be the lights of the world that you have made us to be. God, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Um, there is a condition involving the partial loss of sight in the eye referred to as scotoma. The word comes from a Greek word, skotos, which means darkness. And so you get either partial blindness in your eye, um, little specks, it could be black dots, or it could be like a fuzziness that takes away your peripheral vision. In neurology, this word scotoma is also used and has to do with our mental blind spots. So basically it's something like this. Have you ever had someone ask you, hey, can you go into another room and find me a thing that you don't know where it is? Right? Somebody says, hey, can you go into the kitchen and grab the salt off the counter? And you walk into the kitchen thinking, I have no idea where the salt is. And you look around for a few minutes and say, I don't know where the salt is. I can't find it. And that person then comes in and grabs the salt that was right in front of your face. If you've ever used the phrase, if it was a snake, it would have bitten me. That's scotoma. We have these ideas. Neurology says that when you tell yourself, I can't find the salt because I don't know where it is, you are opening up pathways in your brain to blind you to the salt. And so we have these different parts of our world, parts of our lives, where we have built up blind spots, things that are right in front of our face we can't see. And that's what this morning's passage is about. It's a man who gets fixated on the signs and wonders of God, the things that God can do that he can't see the truth standing right in front of him, before him, calling him to new life. So we're going to pick it up in Acts 8. We're going to start in verse 9. We'll read a section, and then we'll go back uh, and break it down. So Acts 8, starting in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, 
saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So just to catch you up, we have Philip, the evangelist, has showed up in Samaria. You'll remember a man named Saul brought great opposition against the church. Stephen, the first martyr, is killed, and from there, the momentum of those who are antagonizing the church is led by Saul. He is pushing against, opposing the church, breaking into houses and taking men and women and locking them up in prison. And so in response, the Christians all scatter. They leave Jerusalem. Everybody except the apostles, they stayed put. They all scatter about to the different regions, to Samaria and into Judea. And one of those men was named Philip. Now, we had heard Philip's name once before in Acts 6. He was one of the seven chosen to kind of take care of the day-to-day work that the apostles uh, said, we need to focus on prayer and on teaching the word. We need help. We need day-to-day help, people to help manage some of these other, uh, other things that the church is doing. And Philip was one of the seven men chosen. And we know that the requirements of those people who were chosen, one of those requirements was that they be filled with the Spirit, that they be full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit. And so much like we saw with Stephen, Philip is the kind of person who is led by the Spirit. And he's also the kind of person who is preaching the gospel. He is sharing his faith as he has moved into this new area. He is in Samaria, and there he is preaching about Jesus. Hearing his words, we saw in the opening verses of chapter 8, hearing his words and seeing his actions, many paid attention to him, and there was great joy in the city. There was great joy in the city because when Christians are speaking the gospel and living the gospel, joy will be a byproduct of that. But when you preach the gospel and you live the gospel, you will often times also find opposition to the gospel. And Samaria had its share of opposition to the gospel. Samaria itself has a tradition and a history that would be opposed to any kind of outside voice. The area itself was hostile to outsiders because they had, for hundreds of years, been treated like outsiders themselves. We talked a little bit last week that Samaritans were those from the northern tribes of Israel that had been conquered by the Assyrians and had either been taken away and then brought back to this place or they were captured, and then as different foreign groups took over the areas, the Assyrians just kind of let things happen. Over time, over generations, the Israelites started to intermarry with Canaanites, and they started to build these new families that were counter to what God had said, and God had commanded to them to do. And so now the Samaritans are seen as this other half-breed of person. They were protected and They protected themselves and treated everybody else like outsiders because they themselves had been treated like outsiders by everyone else. As a protective measure, they closed themselves off even to the Jews. Even a Greek one like Philip is going to have trouble walking into Samaria. The animosity and hatred ran deep between the Jews and the Samaritans. Though they could both trace their lineage to similar points, the Jews saw the Samaritans as unclean and traitors to their own bloodline. There was hate and disregard and disrespect in the hearts of the people on both sides. It's why when you read the Gospels, and in Luke 10, Jesus is telling a parable about a man who is injured on the side of the road, and the rabbis walk by, and the 
The Jews walk by, and everybody walks by, and it is the good Samaritan who helps the man on the road and takes care of him and, and gives as much as he can. And when Jesus tells that parable, everybody's head just went, because the idea of a Samaritan doing something good for an Israelite was completely foreign concept. Just the very fact in John 4 that Jesus is at a well speaking to a Samaritan woman, even she knows, and when they're talking, even she says to Jesus, what are you doing? You know who I am, I know who you are, we can't be doing this in public, because you didn't even speak, if you were an Israelite, you didn't, a Jew, you didn't even speak to the Samaritans in public. Like we said, if you were going north and had to cut through Samaria, you would go around Samaria. You would spend extra days and even weeks to get to your final destination just to avoid having to walk on the same ground that they walked. And so for someone like Philip to show up preaching, just the nature of who he was, the fact that he is a Jew versus who they were, this was going to put him at a disadvantage. They were going to see him as an outsider. But there's more opposition just even beyond the history and the tradition. There's more opposition, and that is a man named Simon. Simon the magician, as he is known. It says he amazed the people with his sorcery. He was so impressive with what he could do that the people started to say he had a divine power, that he was either empowered by the gods or was maybe a demigod himself of some sort. This went along with what he said about himself. He said, I am somebody great. You know what they say, it ain't bragging if you can back it up. And he could back it up. He was his own hype man, and he made the hype, but then he lived up to it with the tricks, with the sorcery that he was able to do. He created a reputation for himself and lived up to it, and the people believed he had some sort of otherworldly power. So because of this, his influence and persona was everywhere throughout the city. He was respected and regarded and was an unofficial leader of the Samaritan city. What he thought, how he viewed things, the, that was how things were going to go. So again, Philip not only has to deal with the history and legacy of animosity between the Samaritans and the Jewish people, but also the spiritual influence and leadership that this man Simon held over the people. It seems like the deck is, the deck is stacked against Philip, right? I mean, logically, it doesn't make sense at this point to try and preach the gospel here. It's a bunch of people who already hate outsiders, who are, have been conditioned to think that this sorcerer, this witch, this wizard, whatever you want to call him, this magician, is maybe a god himself. They have leaned in and said, this is, this is a divine power. Everything about the situation says, Philip, why would you go there? Logically, it doesn't make sense to preach the gospel. How could it possibly take root in a place like this that is rooted in separation and hate and sorcery? How could the gospel possibly take root in a city like Chicago with a history of isolation, separation, segregation, hate, and so many different religious and spiritual views that it's hard to keep track of them all? Right? We might as well just pack it up and go home. Go find an easier place to preach. More fertile soil, as Christians would say. Somewhere where people are more willing to respond to the gospel. And then we get to verse 12. And we get to my, one of my favorite words in all of the Bible. But. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. The gospel 
breaks through the hate. It breaks through the isolation. It breaks through the sorcery. And they believe. They believe the good news. They believe the gospel. That though they were sinners and rebels and enemies and strangers of God, a way had been made. The way had come. The truth had come. Life had come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They heard that through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, new life was available. Full life, real life was being offered. Reconciliation was being offered. Freedom and joy and peace and hope were being offered by putting your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Those who had been told for generations, you know what? You're not really part of any kind of group. Because you Samaritans, you're too Gentile to be a Jew, and you're too Jew to be a Gentile. You're just kind of in this other third category. Those people found identity and purpose and place in the gospel. And that message is the same today for the person who feels unwanted, unknown, and lost, wandering and confused, overwhelmed and disengaged and disapproved. There is life to be had. There is grace to be had. There is hope to be had, found by putting your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This verse will have great implications and results connected to it. We said way back in chapter 3 about when Peter and John healed a crippled man and the ripple effect that that would have. This right here in verse 12, but they believed, and the gospel is spreading into Samaria, will have continuing ripple effects throughout history. This right here is the first time the gospel has been preached and accepted beyond the relatively safe zone of Jerusalem. Yes, at Pentecost, there was many from all over the world, and they heard the gospel, but they were in Jerusalem. They were in the friendly confines. But here now, Philip is on enemy territory. And we'll see momentarily that this event is not only the fulfillment of Jesus' commission to the early believers, right? You will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus has made that happen through the persecution brought about by Saul. The gospel has spread out into these areas. This is the fulfillment of Jesus' commission, but it's also bigger than that. It's something even greater. It's the family of God being open to those beyond the full-blooded Jewish uh, bloodline. While Samaritans were technically Jews, they also had, through generations of marrying, marrying the Canaanites, they had lost their way and their connection to their faith and their ancestors. This here, the hearing and believing of the gospel and responding to it, this is what God meant way back thousands of years ago when God said to Abraham, you are going to be a blessing. Your descendants are going to be a blessing to the world, to the nations. This is what was talked about. When the prophet Isaiah talks about the root of Jesse being sprung, when he talks about the opening of the gates and welcoming people in, this is what was being talked about, that it was for hundreds, thousands of years. It was God and the Israelites, and it was them alone. God's people were the Israelites. Here now we're seeing that broken open. Because of Christ, anyone and everyone's welcome at the table. And so because of that, now we're seeing God step into, and the gospel step into places where it was hard soil, antagonistic soil, and saying, no, you're welcome, you're mine, come and be part of the family of God. This here, the hearing and believing of the gospel is the fulfillment of thousands of years of generations of prophecy. People start, including the Samaritans, start to believe, even it says Simon in verse 13. Even Simon himself believed after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. 
Simon believed and was baptized, and then he kept himself real close to the Lord. It seems like Simon had this hold on the city, but now this new power, this new person in Philip comes in, the gospel comes in, and people are starting to believe him and starting to follow him, and it seems like Simon has a little bit of, if you can't beat him, join him. Because it says Simon was amazed by what Philip could do. He was amazed not by the gospel, not by the new life being offered. He was amazed and clung to Philip because of the signs and the miracles. The magician liked the spectacle. It's who he was. This one who told everybody that he was somebody, this one who had the whole city wrapped around his finger is now in awe of what Philip can do. Despite whatever Simon could do, whatever power he might have had, he had to acknowledge that there was real power in the work and person of Philip because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit working through Philip, even Simon had to say, that's more powerful than me. Much like the pharaohs back in Egypt, much like pharaohs, uh, much like pharaoh's magicians, they had their power, they had their influence, right? But then Moses shows up, and the power of God works through Moses, and even the magicians back then had to go to Pharaoh and say, we don't got power like he's got. I don't know what that is. We can't do that. And so it says Simon believed. Now we're going to come back to this in a bit, but again, realize that Luke makes a point to say that Simon believed and it was the signs and great miracles that consumed him. When we are preoccupied with the what rather than the who, when we are preoccupied with the what, with the signs and miracles and gifts and blessings, rather than the who, rather than namely who God is, when the what matters more than the who, our heart is not in the right place. And while we are going to talk a lot about Simon, the bigger story here in the midst of all of this is that the Samaritans have heard and accepted the gospel, and that's a big deal, and it matters. And so the apostles at Jerusalem wanted to respond to what was going on. Word gets back to Jerusalem that the gospel's going forward, and it's going into places that they hadn't planned for, even though Jesus told them this is what was going to happen. Once again, we see the apostles. They're still those fishermen. They're still those tax collectors. Jesus told them this is what was going to happen, and still it goes over their head. But we see that the Holy Spirit is breaking in to Samaria. Let's pick it up in verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. We'll stop there for Peter's response. The gospel is in Samaria, and that is something brand new. As I've said, up to this point, it is basically only the Jewish people in and around Jerusalem that were turning to the gospel. But word has gotten back to the apostles that the gospel is in Samaria. And so they send Peter and John to the city to investigate and to validate what had happened. And so Peter and John go down to Samaria to check things out. Interestingly enough, in Luke 9, Jesus is traveling. And instead of going around Samaria like everybody else, Jesus decides to go through Samaria as he's making his way to Jerusalem. And the people in the town did not receive him well. They treated him poorly. 
They didn't like that this man from Nazareth was walking in their city. And the disciples, being the friends and followers that they were, didn't like the response from the people. And in Luke 9, James and his brother John asked Jesus, Hey, Jesus, those guys treated you poorly. Do you want us to call down fire and just burn the place down? Hey, Jesus, we didn't like how they treated you. Do you want us to just take a flamethrower? This is why James and John were referred to as the sons of thunder. They were a bit impulsive, and they liked to break stuff. Now here, sometime later, John is sent to those same people that he wanted to destroy, but not to destroy, but to validate and encourage and lift them up and welcome them in as brothers and sisters into the family of God. So Peter and John show up, and they pray that these believers would receive the Holy Spirit. They show up and they're either told or they just somehow knew that a spiritual gift, they had a spiritual gift that these believers had not received the Holy Spirit. These new Christians in Samaria had put their faith in Christ. They had been baptized, but the Holy Spirit didn't show up. So it says Peter and James pray for them. They lay their hands on them and the Holy Spirit shows up. Now, for some of you, you should be saying to yourselves, but Pastor Tim... I thought that as soon as someone is saved, they receive the Holy Spirit. So what's the deal here? Why didn't these guys get the Holy Spirit right when they believed? Or you could take that even a step further and say, did I get the Holy Spirit when I first believed? Or do I need some extra prayer for that to happen? Because it seems like these guys needed extra prayer. Have I been living my whole life unknowingly not having the Holy Spirit when I thought I did? We've talked about in the book of Acts, there are many things, and it's throughout the Bible, but it's, oh, it shows up a lot in the book of Acts. Prescriptive, descriptive, right? Prescriptive instructions that still hold true for us today. Ten Commandments, prescriptive, this is how you should live, don't kill people. Descriptive tells us of something that happened. It doesn't say this is how you should go do these things, right? Jesus sends the apostles to go uh, sail across the lake, even though he knows a storm is coming, because he had to teach them a moment while they were caught in a storm. That is not the Bible saying, hey, if you want to learn a, a lesson from God, you should go sailing in the middle of a thunderstorm. Prescriptive versus descriptive, right? We're not able to, sometimes we need to be able to tell the difference between these two things. A lot of people get real angry at each other when they take things that are descriptive and make them prescriptive and vice versa. So then the question becomes, is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is this telling us this is how you receive the Holy Spirit, or is this telling us this is what happened back then? This is descriptive. I'm just going to cut to the chase. There's a lot of theories and a lot of ideas. We're going to get right to this. This is descriptive. This is a special time. Much like the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, or even the events involving the death of Ananias and Sapphira, these early days of the church were different and something new, and God was building something new, and so things were different. This hadn't happened before. The gospel hadn't yet gone to others outside of the Jews. And so the idea was, okay, the gospel is now in Samaria. What if it causes friction between the Samaritan church and the Jerusalem church that already existed? Because for thousands of years, there was already friction between the Samaritans and the Jews in Jerusalem. What if the message got corrupted? We don't know what they heard. We don't know what they believed. We don't know who's, who else is teaching what. What if the Samaritans just kept on doing what they had always done because the Samaritans over time had created basically their own form of Judaism with their own scriptures, their own temple. They made it their own thing. 
The church at this time is still in its infancy, and it needed the consistency of the message and the people. And so the apostles go to make sure everything's okay. But more importantly, this, this act, the sending of Peter and John here, is used to solidify and unify the Samaritan church. This was an opportunity for unity. History and generational sin had alienated and separated the Samaritans and the Jews. Jesus taught over and over again that the Samaritans were not enemies to be feared or fought with, but neighbors to be loved and cared for just as anyone else. What's happening here is reconciliation. It's taking what has been broken and restoring it. That's what the gospel does. It's Samaritans. You don't need your own version of the scriptures or your own special place to worship. You aren't cast-offs. You aren't outsiders. You are part of the family of God. And so in the same way that God's apostles, God's sent ones, were there on the day of Pentecost to usher in the arrival of the church with the Holy Spirit, they were then again here now. The disciples are there so that they can be part of welcoming in the Holy Spirit showing up in Samaria. Samaritans, don't think you got some second-hand faith, that you got some second-hand gospel. No, you had the same situation happen that happened in Jerusalem. The disciples are here now to give you that same experience so that we're all of one accord. The laying on of hands by Peter and John, it wasn't magic. It wasn't like the secret formula that they needed. It was a public validation and support and unity. You are just as Christian, just as connected, just as saved, just as filled with the Holy Spirit as anyone else who has heard the gospel and believed so far. This is still true today. It doesn't matter what your background is, where you come from, how many commas you have in your bank account, or if you're in the bread. It doesn't matter whether you vote right or left, if you grew up in church or you've never stepped foot in one before. If you have put your faith in Jesus, these things don't matter. You are not the sins that you have committed. You are not the sins that have been committed against you. You are a new creation. If you are in Christ, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This special laying on of hands and prayer was special and specific for these people at this time. It is not needed or even available today because we don't have any more apostles. They've been dead for a really, really long time. The guys who were the original 12 are long gone, so we have to move on from this idea. Now, what does the Bible actually say? Because when you're trying to figure out prescriptive and descriptive and just trying to interpret the Bible, the beautiful thing about the Bible is that the Bible interprets the Bible. Salvation has always been equated to the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul says, you received the Holy Spirit when you put your faith in Christ. And he says it again in Romans 8, 11. Similarly, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit. If you have put your faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, fully and completely. Nothing is needed extra. There's no extra prayer to receive the Holy Spirit beyond faith in Christ. Now, we have talked about the filling up of the Holy Spirit, being more in tune with the Holy Spirit at different points in our lives. And the Bible tells us that we should be pursuing that, being, poor, being filled up in the Spirit, meaning being consumed by, being led by the Spirit in different points. That is different than actually having the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up fully and completely when you put your faith in Christ. 
Whether or not you are listening and paying attention or following him, that's a whole different sermon. The apostles show up and they lay hands and the Holy Spirit arrives in Samaria. We have Christians in Samaria. Now there may be some kind of physical manifestation such as tongues like what happened at Pentecost, something observable that may have happened because this happens, they pray, the Holy Spirit shows up and we hear again from Simon the magician. You know, the one who, was, who he believed and he's baptized and he, he's with everybody. But now we hear that he's got something to say and we, we read it briefly, I'll read it one more time for us. When Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay, lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon sees the power possessed by the apostles and he wants some. Can't beat them, join them. And now he sees he wants this power and authority and he tries to buy his way into it. Peter responds to that request with a direct refusal and prophetic word toward the magician. Eugene Peterson's translation in his paraphrase in the message, he paraphrases um, that verse 19 or uh, 20. When Peter responds, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, to hell with you and your money can all go to hell. That's what Peterson says. Peter was very direct when someone tried to oppose the gospel. He says in verse 21, you have no role or authority here because your heart is not right with God. He doesn't just give a stiff rebuke, though. Peter doesn't just say, you got no place here, get out. But like any good prophet, even in the midst of these harsh words, he gives the magician a way to the truth. He says in verse 22, turn away, repent. Walk in the other direction. Walk away from this wickedness that is in your heart. He says, repent and pray. Go talk to God. It's your relationship with him, your standing with him and before him that matters here. It's clear that your heart has not been changed because if it had, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Simon, go pray and ask for forgiveness. Go and pursue a heart change is what he talks about in verse 22. Go to God and ask him to change your heart, to get to the root, to rip out the weeds and let the goodness of the gospel grow there. That's how life change happens. You allow God to get to the root of your sin issues and expose it to the light, kill it dead, and plant in there the goodness of the gospel, the grace and joy and love and peace and hope of the gospel. Peter continues, he says in verse 23, he says, Simon, I see you for who you are. You're sick with bitterness and trapped in sin. You're in a bad way here, Simon. You got two options. You can go to God and seek him for real. Seek after him actually. Not what he can do, not what he can give you, but just seek him and his presence just because of who he is. Or option two, you can stay stuck in this bitterness and sin and you end up eternally in hell for rejecting God. And we see in verse 24, when confronted by Peter's words, Simon's answer reveals his heart. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
Does he take ownership for his actions? Not rhetorical. Does he take ownership? No. No trick question. Does he confess or repent? No. Does he even do what Peter told him and go and pray? No. At least not immediately. His response is, pray for me that the bad stuff you said would happen if I don't change doesn't happen. It's the person who smokes cigarettes for years and years of their life, and then they get sick and they go to the doctor, and the doctor says, you need to quit smoking or you're going to die. And that person says, pray that I don't die because I'm going to keep smoking. Pray that this thing that I know is going to happen doesn't happen because I'm not changing. There's seemingly no life change, no remorse, no repentance here with Simon. And we don't know 100% of the fact of the story because this is the end. This is the end of Simon. We don't hear from him again in the scripture. So we don't know what happens after this. But we do have multiple different church fathers, church historians, uh, including Justin Martyr, who was a historian of sorts that lived at the time, who claimed that Simon the Magician would go on to basically be the creator of Gnosticism, that he had followers and influence throughout Samaria and even into Rome, that he would continue to be an antagonist to the church. Whether it's the same guy or not depends on what commentary you're reading. But most of history tells us Simon doesn't change. And regardless if, it, if he did or didn't, there's something here, I think, for all of us. Because the truth is, it is possible to play the part of Christian and not actually be a Christian. It's possible to believe in the power and the authority and the actuality that Jesus was God, is God, and to not be a Christian. Was Simon actually a believer? I think he believed as much as he would let himself believe. I think he believed that Philip had a real power. He believed that power was beyond Philip, came from beyond Philip, but I don't think he trusted Christ as a savior. But by all outward appearances, he believed, right? He said as much. He said the words. He got baptized. He hung out with Christians in Christian community. Everything about his outward appearance said Simon was a Christian. But we know that God is not impressed nor tricked by our outward appearances. It is the heart that he is looking for. See, it is possible to say the right things, to be filled with a head knowledge of who Jesus is, even to believe that Jesus is God, to pray the prayers, to say the words, to know the words to the songs, get yourself baptized, lead a community group, go to Bible church, even become a pastor and not be a Christian. It's possible to play the part to get so caught up in the emotions and feelings of information that leads us into running and doing and trying to act like a Christian that eventually you slow down for a minute and you begin to wonder, am I really a Christian? Do I actually believe this or is this something that it's just been part of my life and it's not even mine? Or even scarier than that. You go about living your life as a Christian, an actual Christian, you go about living this life not realizing that what you thought was a real relationship with Jesus didn't actually exist. One of the scariest passages, I think, that's in Scripture, it says in Matthew 7, Jesus speaks and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, you not, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you work. In that passage, Matthew 7, it's, it's sandwiched in between Jesus doing a lot of talking. And, and right before that passage, Jesus is talking about fruit trees. And he says, you'll know a tree by its fruit, right? Apple trees produce apples, orange trees 
produce oranges. Healthy trees produce healthy fruit. Sick trees, diseased trees bear sick, diseased fruit. And then he talks about this right here. And he says, there are going to be some who say to me, Lord, Lord, I, I did these things. I, I lived the Christian life. I prophesied. I, I cast out demons. Aren't we good? And he's going to say, I never. And then right after that, he continues, and he says, if you build a house on sand, it's going to eventually get washed away. The storms will wipe it away. But if you build your house on a rock, it's not going anywhere. So he says, good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. There will be some who will come and say, I'm a Christian. And Jesus will say, no, you're not. And if you build your house on sand, it will be ripped away. If you build your house on the rock, it will stand. He says it in three different ways, but he's basically saying the same thing over and over again. What's your actual core? What kind of fruit do you produce? Does Jesus actually know you and you know him? What kind of foundation are you standing on? Do you actually believe Jesus is Savior and Lord, or is he just the giver of gifts? Is he the Christ, or is he just a good teacher? Is he a way, or is he the way? Peter couldn't answer these questions for Simon any more than I can answer them for you. It's a decision you have to make. And more than that, it's a, more than a decision, it is a life you are called to lead in response to that decision. Simon was interested in what God could do for him and how he could acquire power and authority and acclaim. He was so close. He heard the message. He saw the signs and wonders. He had a relationship with Christians. He got baptized. He was in the midst of men and women who were filled with the Holy Spirit. Simon was so close, it was right in front of his face, and he missed it. Don't miss it. Don't miss what is right in front of your face this morning. You cannot earn work or win your way into a right relationship with God. At the end of time, God will not be impressed with what you did or didn't do, but he wants to have a relationship with you through Jesus. And from that relationship, yes, should flow good fruit. And fruit is used to identify us as followers of Jesus, not to justify us before God. He said it when he was choosing David to be the next king. He said it over and over again throughout with the prophets and the judges. Jesus taught it over and over again. God is not impressed or swayed by your show. He wants your heart. He wants your relationship with you. He wants you to trust him and allow him to lead you and guide you and care for you and protect you and at times challenge and correct and shape you. Today is that day to answer who is Jesus and where do you stand with him. And if you believe him to be God and Savior, do you live like it? Do you actually live like he is your Lord, like he's in control of all things at all times? You've heard it this morning. You've got the book in your hands. You are so close to the truth. Do not miss what is right in front of your face. God made you. He knows you. He knows everything about you, the good and the bad, the stuff you love to put on social media and the stuff you got buried deep in the deepest parts of your soul that you want no one else to know about. He knows that, and he loves you in spite of that. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. He knows you. He made you. He loves you. Choose the life that God is offering you. Choose the life. Choose to live as lights of the world, the lights of the world that he has made us to be. God, we thank you and we thank you.
just is, is this just a thing I do, or is this my life? Is it real? We know you are good. We know you bless us. We know you take care of us. We know you provide over and over again. But even beyond all of that, God, for those who don't know you, for those who have not put their faith in you, or for those who are maybe realizing for the first time that they didn't actually put their faith in you, God, I pray that today is that day. That today is that day where they get to look back and say, that was the day. And maybe I was walking in a different, maybe I thought I was living as a Christian. Maybe I thought I was living and I knew Jesus. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict and change hearts this morning. That you would call people to admit their need for you, admit their sins, admit their need for a Savior, believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and choose him to be Lord of their lives, King of their lives. Help us to live in response to the goodness of the gospel. Help us, as people who know what unconditional love looks like, Help us to be people who love unconditionally. As people who, as people who know what grace looks and feels like, help us to be people of grace. As people who know what true joy is, that it can't be taken from us, that it can't be based on our circumstances, that it's based in trusting in you, Lord, help us to be people who are full of God, let us never lose sight of or minimize the gospel but to dwell on it and reflect on it and rediscover it and re-remind ourselves of it every day. Not only our desperate need for a Savior, but the joy and new life that comes with it.